We've been working our way through Paul's treatment of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 uh, the last several Sundays. Uh, Paul has already established uh, his theology of the gifts in chapter 12, and then he explained the importance of love in chapter 13. And uh, last week in particular, we looked at the lasting nature of love. Remember, its warranty is eternal. It's better than a lifetime warranty. It's eternal. Love lasts both now and forever. We notice as well that other gifts or works of the Spirit are not permanent. If you look at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you see that uh, Paul talks about this perfect thing happening, coming. And when the perfect comes, everything that is partial will be done away with. The question, though, was what is the perfect, right? Uh, I have heard this past week from you about Sunday's sermon. Uh, I've heard glowing reports or responses. I've had some people say, man, I just never, never saw like that was like what, that, what you did. That was awesome. But, but I've also heard of some... Uh, scandalous reports, right, of, of some of you who just didn't quite buy into uh, my explanation of the perfect. You know what? That's fine, right? That's, it's a difficult passage. It's hard to understand exactly what the perfect is. I, I suggested last week that the perfect was the maturity of the universal church. That Paul was saying that there's coming a time when, uh, when the foundation of the universal church will be, will be laid, the apostles and prophets will have laid the foundation of the universal church, and partial gifts of revelation like tongues, prophecy, and knowledge will no longer be necessary. Perhaps the church would no longer need these gifts because of the written revelation of scripture or the ministry of the apostles or the teaching and preaching of pastors and teachers in every local assembly. So... Uh, whatever you think the perfect is, though, when the perfect comes, Paul suggests that the gifts of tongues, prophecy, and knowledge will pass away. And I think it's obvious that whether that's maturity or the scriptures or something else, that would soon take place. Those gifts won't last, but love does. As we come to 1 Corinthians 14, it's important to remember that Paul's addressing questions that the Corinthians pose to him about the use of spiritual gifts in worship. And I want to make a few points of explanation here in chapter 14 as we start this chapter, because this is a very important chapter for the health of any local assembly. And the explanations I want to give are in regards to several differences between the way that they worshiped and met as a first century congregation in Corinth and the way we worship and meet today in our time. Some of these differences include, first, the location of the gatherings is different. The first century, of course, you, you probably know enough of the Bible to know that they met in homes, and sometimes in the home of a wealthy landowner like Chloe. First Corinthians chapter 1, we can read about the household of Chloe. Perhaps she was the, the host for the church of Corinth. Today, we don't typically meet in homes. Second, the size of their gatherings was different. In the first century, archaeology has helped us in Corinth to know that the average size of a home would allow for maybe 15 to 35 people or so to gather in a home for a local assembly. The common dining area would be big enough for about 15 or 20 people, and then there'd be an outer courtyard that perhaps could fit another 10 or 15. 
The point I'm making is the size of their gatherings is much different than many churches in America or in the world today. Third, there's a difference in the nature of the services. The nature of their services was different, including extended times of lay ministry and involvement. So as they gathered in their small houses and they began to minister together, it would be often that someone would come and comment on the scriptures. Someone would teach or preach the scriptures, but they would also sing together. And this is sounding very similar to what we're doing, right? Commenting on scripture, singing together. They would engage in the ordinances together and they would have times in their homes where they would use their gifts to worship God and minister to others. That perhaps is a little bit different than our Sunday morning service. That leads us to one other difference and that other difference is the length and the regularity of their meetings in the first century as as compared to now. For instance, in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews empowers or challenges believers not to neglect the daily assembly of the believers. In the book of Acts, we can learn as well that early believers continue daily in the apostles' doctrine and teaching. And some, when you put all of these together, early believers did not gather in a large room for an hour a week and check church off of their weekly to-do list. No, they had many opportunities to use their gifts and encourage one another in the Lord. I think as a consequence of some of the differences between the way they worship and the way we worship today, it may be that as I have preached through sermons in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, those sermons have been met in your heart by one of two reactions. It may be that some of you are indifferent regarding everything that Paul has to say here about developing and using your gifts in the assembly. You're indifferent because you think that these sermons don't relate to you. I mean, you don't have the opportunity to use your gifts in the Sunday service. Another way of saying this is, why develop gifts you'll never use? So, it's not for me. Or you might respond, not with indifference, but with frustration. I mean, when am I going to have the opportunity to use the gifts that God has given to me in this assembly? I mean, things are different. I'm struggling to know how to use my gifts in this assembly. In response, I would say that we need a fuller understanding of the nature of our own local assembly, Colonial Baptist Church. I mean, our church leadership years ago was intentional in what we are trying to accomplish in our gatherings. Our Sunday worship service is primarily designed to build up the members of Colonial Baptist Church. So the pastor stands up here and speaks God's word to you for 40 to 50 minutes every Sunday for the upbuilding of the congregation. I think it is true that the Sunday morning service offers few opportunities to use your gifts in the assembly, maybe singing and so on or participating in some part of the service. But, there, but I, I, would, I would answer that by saying there are many other opportunities for you to use your gifts in our gatherings as assembly. So for instance, on Wednesday night, we have all kinds of different opportunities for you, you to use the gifts that you've been, you've been built up on Sunday morning. Now comes time to use your gifts in the assembly so you can come to Awana and you can minister and train and teach young people uh, to know the word of God. You can minister to them and build them up or you can come 
uh, to our prayer meeting. We specifically design our prayer meeting. We give opportunities for members to pray together. We pray together for 15, 20 minutes at a time so that we can encourage each other through prayer, so we can exhort each other, so we can share burdens, so we can confess sins. There are other things, not just on, on Wednesdays. We have adult Bible studies and children's Bible studies. These offer plenty of opportunities to use your gifts in this assembly. We're having something tonight called Grace Gatherings. Grace Gatherings have been strategically designed so that you might be able to build others up in this assembly. You might also be able to deliberately live in community with other people in this church, in the assembly, making deliberate choices to exhort and encourage them throughout the week. So uh, basically what I'm suggesting here at the beginning is if, if you just come to service every Sunday morning without arranging other meaningful interchanges or exchanges with others in the assembly, then this text will be a great challenge to you. It's going to be a great challenge to you. You see, if you race out of the parking lot every Sunday morning, this text will give you something to think about. In chapter 14, Paul responds to the chaotic church gatherings of the Corinthian church by giving his own vision for how their church should function when they come together, whether that was on Sunday or other times throughout the week. Paul's vision for this church contains what I'm going to call in chapter 14, three guiding values. So as I see chapter 14, I see these three guiding values forming Paul's vision for the chaotic church at Corinth. The three guiding values are verses 1 through 13, he's going to give them the guiding value of edification. When you come together, you must build each other up in the Lord. That's why we're meeting together. That's why we're gathering together. He moves beyond that, and in verses 14 through 25, he gives them the guiding value of understanding, mutual understanding. When you come together, people need to understand what's going on. That's going to help the Corinthian church a bunch. Then when you get to the end of the passage in verses 26 through 40, he says when you come together and you're involved in worship, you're gathering in the assembly, you need to proceed with order. The third guiding value is order, verses 26 through 40. This morning, we're going to look at the very first one, first half of this guiding value of edification. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 together this morning. Let's look down in our Bibles at verse 1. Paul says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue's tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. In verses 1 through 13, you have one large section where Paul emphasizes edification. This one section comes in two paragraphs. This morning we look at verses 1 through 5, the first paragraph. The second paragraph is verses 6 through 13. One of the ways you know this is one section is Paul starts with two imperatives, two commands in verse 1. 
And then he ends in verses 12 and 13 with two commands. They kind of form the top and the bottom of the section. In verse 1, he says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. And then in verses 12 and 13, he'll say, earnestly desire, he uses similar language, or strive or seek to excel in the spiritual gifts or in building, building others. And then in verse 13, he gives a command and pray. Pray that you may be able to interpret. So the first paragraph starts with the imperative and every, the two imperatives and everything builds off of them, from them. The last paragraph, everything builds to the final in paragraphs, the final imperatives. And so as we look at verses one through five, uh, the entire structure is arranged around these two imperatives. You get these two imperatives, you really get Paul's main point. The first imperative, you know, I've got two main points in the sermon this morning. The first main point is imperative number one, pursue love. He says it right there at the beginning of the passage, pursue love. When Paul gives us this command or imperative, I think it should remind us of a few things. First of all, he's just talked about what love looks like all throughout chapter 13. I think it brings to mind the entire emphasis that Paul has in chapter 13 on love. But I think that this command, pursue love, should also remind us of his, of his uh, final declaration at the end of chapter 12. Look down your Bible at chapter 12 and verse 31. Paul says in chapter 12 and verse 31 that he's going to show them a more excellent way. See that? And yet I'll, I'll show you a more excellent way. And then now he's telling us what that more excellent way is. Pursue love. So here Paul states clearly that the excellent way is to pursue love. Now the imperative pursue is a common expression of the Apostle Paul. He uses this term frequently. I won't give you all the different places where he uses this verb, but he'll often use it of believers and their need to pursue very important spiritual disciplines or spiritual things. Matter of fact, he uses it as a metaphor for spiritual effort repeatedly in the New Testament. So I think of Romans 9, where he says that the Gentiles were not pursuing righteousness. They were not making diligent spiritual effort to follow after righteousness. Romans chapter 12, he talks about the need for believers to pursue hospitality. Probably one of my favorite texts where he uses this verb is Philippians chapter 3, where the apostle Paul says, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So the apostle Paul is kind of laying out his life philosophy, life philosophy and he says, I press toward the mark. That's the same word for pursue here. So as Paul pressed toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, so we too must press toward love. We just read a scripture reading where it talked about, above all else, love others earnestly. And so we've made much of this imperative throughout. We talked about love in many different ways. Perhaps you're a guest here today. Or it's, been, or it's true that you've only been here a few weeks. It's our earnest prayer. It's my earnest prayer that as you gather in this assembly and you begin to interact with us, that you'll see that God is doing something amazing among us here at Colonial Baptist Church. That God is meeting with us and he's changing us and that we love each other here and that we're committed to helping and caring for one another. This, of course, is not something that we do to ourselves. We can do it in our own strength, but this is something we believe that God is working in us. As members of this church, we believe that there's nothing special about any one of us. 
And actually, the Bible makes it quite clear that every person left to his or her own accomplishments falls short of God's standard, his perfect glory. And all of our failures do not just mean that we'll pay some little price to God and be okay, but that the Bible teaches that each one of us, because of our sins, are dead in trespasses and sins. This means that no one in this room can stand before God or declare on the merit of his or her own works that God should let them enter into heaven. No, the Bible says this clearly. We are all sinners, and the payment of our sin is eternity in hell, in anguish and pain, separated from God forever and ever. Yet what we know, if if we are members of this church, because we've made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, we know that God produced a plan to deliver men and women from their sin and to save them. And the plan is clearly articulated in the New Testament. Jesus came as the son of God to this planet. He lived and walked among us. He lived perfectly, but then he was crucified on a cross. He died. And what we find in the scriptures is that he died in our place. First Corinthians chapter 15 will tell you that. You flip over just the very next chapter. You see that it was according to the scriptures that Jesus would come, die, and be buried. But it was also according to the scriptures that Jesus would rise again from the grave three days later. And so faith in Jesus is the only way for someone to be saved. I think of Acts 4 and verse 12. Neither is there salvation found in any other name. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's no other way to be saved or delivered. And that is what we rejoice in at Colonial Baptist Church. The members of this church all profess that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of men. And that unity around the cross of Christ encourages us to pursue and demonstrate love and care for each other. A love that's different than any other union you will find on this planet. And so if you're a guest of our ministry, we trust that you will see that today. That we love the Lord and we love each other. If you're a guest here and you've never, ever believed in Jesus, it's our prayer as well that you would confess your sins to God and you would believe in Jesus for your salvation. So this is a first imperative, pursue love. The second imperative is also important. It's found in verse, the middle of verse 1, and then the rest of this text relates to that imperative. Look at verse 1 with me in the middle part of the verse. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy or prophesy. Second, Paul writes that the Corinthians must earnestly desire spiritual gifts. This command can be translated and zealously speak, seek the spiritual. Here in verse 2, Paul calls for the Corinthians to seek after things that come from the Spirit of God. And then he prioritizes the gift of prophecy. Now, by mentioning prophecy here, uh, Paul specifically begins to uh, start an extended comparison between two gifts. If you read down through the rest of this passage, you'll see this comparison going back and forth between tongues and prophecy. He's worked with other lists of gifts before. He started with nine gifts. He then went down to five gifts. 
Last chapter, he talked about three gifts, tongues, prophecy, and knowledge, and now he's dealing with two, which makes me think that he's getting to the heart of the problem in Corinth. He's beginning to specifically answer their question. They had questions about tongues and prophecy. Now, let me just take a moment to remind you what I felt that these two gifts involved. Uh, I've dealt with this in a few other sermons, but for the sake of our sermon this morning, we need to all understand this. Uh, First of all, tongues. What is tongues? I believe tongues is used of the phenomenon unique to the early church where someone was able to speak so that people from various language groups could understand the speaker in their own language at the same time. If you want to learn more about tongues, I told you before, you go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, Acts 10, Acts 19, and you can see that in those chapters in the book of Acts, God speaks through the disciples or some of his early converts to proclaim the gospel to people all around the world. And that each person understood the proclamation in his or her native language. And so through speaking in tongues, believers in Christ were able to communicate in multiple human languages at the same time so that others could see that Jesus was the Son of God. That's tongues. Revelation from God through disciples and early converts in multiple different languages at the same time so that people would hear it in their own tongue. That brings us to the gift of prophecy, and prophecy involves new revelation from God as well. The new revelation of prophecy, however, came in the natural language of the speaker and the hearer. Prophecy uh, normally involves something like a direct word into the life of the hearer that would greatly challenge the person hearing it challenge him or her regarding their sin or their past and and no one would have even given them insider information so that they could speak this way other than God. So prophecy might involve uncovering the secrets of his or her heart, laying it open and bare so that the person would fall on their knees, repent and say that God was there. We'll read about that more in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So you got these gifts of tongues and prophecy. That's on a basic level how I understand it. And so Paul says that the Corinthians should earnestly desire spiritual gifts and especially prophecy. And then what he goes about doing in verses 2 through 5 is he gives them three reasons why prophecy is a better gift than tongues. Okay, so the rest of this sermon, just, we're just going to quickly work down through these three reasons. Now, Uh, The first reason is found in verse 2. First reason they should prefer prophecy over tongues in verse 2 is that uh, Paul explains that no other person in the gathering will benefit from tongues as the Corinthians express them. You got to look in your Bible again at verse 2. Verse 2 says, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. Paul specifically suggests here that the only person who might understand the Corinthians form of tongue speaking is God. Because they utter mysteries in the spirit when they speak. That's what the text says. And so that leads us to a difficult decision here. And uh, I want to encourage you to pay attention to my explanations in verse 2. Okay, Verse 2 is a bit harder. All right, And so what I'm doing as your pastor, is I'm attempting to build you up right now. For that to work, you have to pay attention. 
and you got to try to follow. Okay, because verse two is in the Bible and I want you to understand it. So while there's a whole host of different ways or possible ways to explain verse two, one of the questions we need to ask here is, what exactly was the Corinthians tongue speaking? Because it sounds a little bit different than the book of Acts. In Acts, it was revelation from God to men. However, at least at first glance, Paul seems to be saying that the Corinthians tongue speaking was from man to God. So how do we explain this? And there are two possible explanations I just want to work through. I mean, I could give you a whole host of them, okay? There's about as many explanations as there are English commentaries of the Bible. One way you could understand verse 2. It's possible to explain verse 2 in the following way. Perhaps tongues originally came in two different forms from God. Public foreign languages like Acts, and private prayer languages, perhaps, like what 1 Corinthians might be saying here. So one form included multiple human languages being professed at the same time, whereby those present could hear tongues in their own language, like what's going on in Acts. The other form was speaking that was to be used in private communication between a person or believer and God. This private language, I think you find, if, that, if that's the way you're going to explain this later on in chapter 14, this private language of tongues was not, was not even understood by the speaker himself. In verse 14 and verse 19, Paul talks about speaking in tongues of my mind being fruitless, my mind not even understanding what's going on. This is the way many people think about tongues in 1 Corinthians. So what may be happening in verse 2 is the Corinthians may be taking a form of tongues that was designed for private edification, and they were using it in the assembly where everyone else was alienated and couldn't understand what was going on. See, that's one way of possibly understanding verse 2. Paul's counsel then is that this form of tongue speaking should never be found in the gathered assembly. You know, this private heavenly language that you have between yourself and God and your devotion, you should never do this in the assembly because no one would understand it. Many charismatics believe this today, but so do uh, some conservative people as well. The conservatives say, well, you know, that was tongue speaking in the first century, but it doesn't matter because it's all ceased. Anyway, Paul just told us, 1 Corinthians 13, there's coming a time when it would cease, and it has appeared that it does. What's fascinating to me is that even if someone understands the text in this way, the modern practices of the charismatic movement fall dreadfully short of Paul's standards time and time again in this passage. So I, I won't even go into the extreme cases of charismaticism where people do weird things like bark like dogs or involve themselves in whole body convulsions in the name of the Spirit or uh, roll in the aisles of a church in holy spirit, spirit-inspired laughter. Holy laughter, I won't even go there. If we simply reject outright those extreme cases of charismaticism and, and critique only what they do regarding tongues, it appears to me that they still repeat the Corinthian error. Paul has no place for a form of speaking that does not clearly communicate with meaning to hearers. 
And even when charismaticism insists that there's an interpretation, those interpretations do not match the intentions of the tongue speaker himself. Often, I can tell you story after story of friends that I have known or have heard of who've gone into charismatic services, who've repeated an entire sentence or paragraph in Greek or Hebrew. Yeah, in seminary, sometimes they make you do weird things like memorize a verse of Scripture in Greek, as if that really helps you very much. But occasionally, I've heard of people go into a charismatic service that they'll say the whole, you know, like John 3.16 in Greek, and then the interpretation comes from someone else. It's like nothing to do with John 3.16. Not even close to John 3.16. So even if we understand it in this way, it seems to really critique modern abuses in charismaticism. Further, I've heard of no outstanding case with verifiable evidence that Anyone in modern charismaticism has ever spoken in multiple foreign languages without previous knowledge of the language. And women, you have to be very careful in, in what you will, what you will uh, decide to believe. And one of the things that's very interesting to me is that, uh, that, you know, that there really is no verifiable evidence to the claims of many people that they would go into a foreign country and that they would speak in a tongue that they never studied before and that people would understand it in their own language. It's possible to understand this text as Paul addressing a second form of tongue speaking that involved private prayer language, but another way of looking at it is to understand verse 2 as the beginning of Paul's correction of the Corinthians' form of tongues. So in other words, what, I, what I'm trying to articulate, in my, my view throughout this text, is that the Corinthians were off and they're reproducing the spiritual gift of tongues. They messed it up. And that probably really shouldn't surprise us, right? This is the Corinthian assembly. So tongues, as described in Acts, involved revelation from God to human beings in their own language. The Corinthians' form of tongues, however, was a heavenly angelic language that benefited no one. No one could understand it. And from the perspective of the Corinthian tongue speakers, only God could understand the communication. In other words here, the Corinthians were off in their understanding of tongues. At least some of them were. They thought it was a majestic, heavenly way to communicate with God. But Paul begins to to hear systematically to correct their view of things so that only legitimate tongue speaking survives. And Legitimate tongue speaking being multiple known, multiple foreign languages at the same time. So Paul says, no one understands them because they speak mysteries in the spirit. Look at the very end of verse 2. Okay, so if you're going to hold this view, you come to the end of verse 2 and you come to a decision. Look at the very last phrase of verse 2. But he utters mysteries in the spirit. When you come to this phrase, literally it would be translated, but in spirit he speaks mysteries. And every translation makes a judgment call here. You have to supply a word. The ESV and many translations supply the word the before the word spirit. And it leads us to believe that Paul's talking about the Holy Spirit. However, there are other ways to take this, and I like the New American Standard better. If you've got that, and you can, you know, lift up your Bible and shake it and shut. No, don't do that. 
The NAS here is a little bit more helpful to me where they supply not the word the, but the word his. So the NAS is translated, but in his spirit, his human spirit, his internal being, you know, spirit, soul, and body, not the Holy Spirit, but in his internal spirit, he speaks mysteries. So either the Corinthian believers had blown it because they took the private form of tongue speaking and used it in the assembly, or they blew it in that their entire form of tongue speaking was off. Paul's main point is the same either way. Listen, no other human being benefits from tongue speaking as you express them in your gatherings. That's Paul's point. So he's arguing, you know, why is prophecy better than tongues? Because no one else is benefiting from your tongues. Then go with me to verse three, and we'll go quickly through these next ones. Reason number two, why prophecy is better than tongues is because others in the gatherings benefit from prophecy. He says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Okay, we don't have enough time to look at all of this. He's just simply arguing this way. He says, your prophecy is better because you edify other people by encouraging them and consoling them in their faith with the Lord. I will point out, however, we won't look at all three of those words that are used there. I'll point out just if I want you to see the emphasis of this text. Look down your Bible at verse three, and I want you to see all the many different times that Paul uses the words up building, building up, or edifying. They all come from the same Greek word. Look at verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. He says it there. The one who speaks in a tongues, in a tongue, builds up. That's the word upbuilding again. He builds up himself, but the one who prophesies uh, builds up the church. Look at verse 5. And I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. One who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. I mean, Paul is beginning an emphasis here in this section where he keeps talking about edification, building up. Look at verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Look at verse 17. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Then look down in your Bible at verse 26. It's this kind of summary conclusion to the, the whole chapter. Paul says, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done, all things, everything in the assembly for the building up. You see, Paul's emphasizing edification in our text. And so he basically just says, you know what, you need to pray that you would be able to prophesy instead of speaking in tongues because prophecy has the advantage. It's greater in building up the church. He's giving us this guiding value for corporate meetings when we get together as an assembly. We must edify. We must build each other up in the Lord. As pastors should labor to build up the congregation through the teaching of the word of God. And members should not only seek to worship God when they gather in singing, they should also seek to encourage other believers through their singing, through their joyful songs. When we come to prayer meetings or grace gatherings or just gather informally with other members of the assembly, we should be channels of God's blessing and encouragement to them. You see, gatherings are for mutual edification. This is a guiding value 
for the Apostle Paul. Let's look at reason number three. I'll just look at it quickly with you. Verses four and five. Third reason why prophecy, and this is kind of a summary. This kind of combines what he's already said, but in verses four and five, he'll show us prophecy builds others in the gatherings and tongues at best builds only yourself. Look at verse four. The one who speaks in a tongues builds up himself. On the time necessarily to demonstrate this or prove this to you, but I believe Paul's using irony here. He's being a bit sarcastic. Their tongues wasn't building anyone else up. Okay, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you to all speak in tongues. I think that's Paul's genuine wish and desire because tongues was still a legitimate spiritual gift at the time. I desire that you would all have it speak in tongues. Now, he knows that not all of them will, but it's still his desire. I think of Paul like Moses here. Remember Moses in Numbers 11? He says to Joshua, remember, there were 70 elders who began ministering in the camp for a prolonged period of time, and Joshua comes to Moses and says, Moses, you better stop them because Joshua's concerned for the position of Moses. Now other people have the spirit of God like Moses and Moses responds like this. He says, Joshua, do not be sorry or worried on my account. I wish that all of God's people were prophets and that they all had the spirit of God. So I see Paul as being like, Paul being like Moses here. Paul says, yeah, I wish everyone could speak in tongues because he's defending the fact that you know, tongues is a legitimate gift and he has nothing necessarily against it at this point. He wants to make it clear that he did not despise the true gift of tongues. But then he uh, puts the emphasis here on prophecy. So we look down in our Bibles again, verse 5. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So here Paul can say, that tongues is still a legitimate gift, but he prefers prophecy, and he can encourage the Corinthians to have greater zeal for prophecy because it will build the church up. He can also require that tongues, as the Corinthians were practicing it, must be interpreted so that others would gain value from it in a church setting. That's verses 1 through 5. We've worked through the text, and perhaps you still have some questions. It's a difficult passage, but... Let me close by just giving you a little bit of a pastoral challenge or admonition. So Paul says that there is a way that we should think about gatherings, and it involves one word, edification. That's his vision for Christian gatherings in local churches. In this text, Paul begins to declare the importance of diligently seeking gifts that can build others up. Paul's actually going to say a lot more about this in verses 6 through 13. So he's not done, and his point will become even stronger. As I challenge you, you here, I want to first challenge you in this way. If after the Sunday morning service, you quickly retreat to a restaurant or some office or small room on this campus to invite to avoid engaging other people's for edification. That's a problem. I recognize there may be some specific responsibilities that you have from week to week that you just have to get out of here. I recognize that you might have some physical limitations. You know, I can barely sit through one of your sermons. It kills my back. I recognize 
that kind of stuff. But Paul's vision for you, his guiding value for you is edification. He wants you to be serious about building other people up in this church. And so it's been my prayer this week that God would give us some teens in this church who'd be serious about engaging others and encouraging them with the gifts that God has given to them. It's been my prayer that God would lead some of the men of this church to lead their families toward prioritizing opportunities for edification in the gatherings of Colonial Baptist Church. Men who explain to their family that we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together because God may use us at the prayer meeting to encourage, exhort, or comfort other believers in prayer. Or men who will plan ahead so that they arrange a date with their wife on some other time that doesn't necessarily conflict with a corporate gathering of the assembly. Say, you know, wife, I love you. I care for you so much. Let me plan a good outing for us on Saturday. Because I don't want us to miss out on the opportunity to be a blessing and to use our gifts. I want to see, honey, I want to see you use your gifts in the assembly to edify and encourage other people. Or men who will say, you know what? Lunch can wait. You know what I want, family? I want one more hour in God's word. In the adult Bible studies or children Bible studies. We need parents who will explain to their teenagers why they're planning on going to the grace gatherings this evening. Well, this is what I get from the pastors. Okay, kids. In the morning service, we're built up to serve, and grace gatherings give, give us an opportunity to use our gifts to build others up. You know, it's even possible. It's even possible. I've seen this from personal experience. It's even possible for people to be training people for full-time Christian service. To, to be the one training churchmen and to make choices in a regular fashion of skipping out on the assembly, I remember when I was at Northland, one of the things that would just drive me nuts was we had all these people at a Bible college teaching people about local church ministry, and they weren't going to church. Like, I'm not normally a confronter, but it's on. Because, like, you talk about the church all the time, but, like, you don't even go to it. Don't go to it. It's possible to teach other people about these things and yet not be doing them themselves. I want you to just look at the words in the very next paragraph, in the middle to end of verse 12. Look in your Bible and see how Paul closes this next paragraph. He says, So with yourself, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, what are the next words? Strive to excel in building up the church. Are you and your family striving to excel in building up others? Is Paul's vision for our gatherings, edification, a priority for you and your family? I trust and pray that by God's good grace, he will allow us to be a church. You know, I heard a statement years ago, and I think it's partially true in many churches that What's the statement say? You know, 90% of the work is done by 10% of the people. You ever hear that before? Basically, I don't know what's built on, if it's built on any sort of statistical proof or evidence or whatever, but the point is, you know what? In a local church, many times, 10% of the people are actually the ones who are really engaged doing the work. 
Wouldn't it be awesome, Colonial? Wouldn't it be awesome if 90% or 100% of our people were looking not just to come here on Sunday morning, but they're looking for some other way, some other gathering, small or big, in the home. I don't care where the gathering is, where they're building, using their gifts to build other people up. Are you striving to excel in building others up in this assembly? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being able to work through this text. Or in some ways, I know it's a complicated text, but it, it performs a good challenge to us. Lord, it'd be so easy for us, with all the differences between our setting and the Corinthian setting, to dismiss all this stuff about spiritual gifts. They were in small house churches. They were engaging each other daily. They were, they were doing all this stuff. They're interacting together. They're using their gifts practically with each other in homes. It'd be easy for someone to just get confused and say, you know what, I go to church. I attend faithfully on Sunday mornings. And to be blinded by the fact that you would, would call us to excel in using our gifts to build up the body. Lord, I pray that you would burn this into our soul. I pray that you would burn it on our minds, that we would so love other brothers and sisters in the Lord, that we would determine, we'd find ways to spend time with them throughout the week. That we would live in community with each other and that we would not forsake opportunities of gathering together so that we might strive to excel in using our gifts for the upbuilding of the church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.